Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Listen, it is a great joy to introduce to you our guest speaker this morning. We've been telling you that uh, Dr. Crawford Loritz would be here this morning, and it is a great joy to have him here to minister with us this morning, braving the traffic and the rain driving down from, from North Atlanta. Dr. Loritz has been in ministry for many years and is a well-known national speaker. Many of you may have come, become aware of his ministry through Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, which he has been involved with for many years, speaking at many national conferences. He also is a council member of the Gospel Coalition, an organization that has been very helpful, a network of churches that has been very influential uh, on Crosspoint. And for the past 11 years, he has been the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, just up in North Atlanta. But more important than all of that, he is the husband of his wife, Karen, and he has four grown children. And according to the count, the latest count on his website, I don't know if it's the same number, but it has 10 grandchildren. In fact, he was just visiting some grandchildren, he and his wife, before uh, Dr. Loritz drove down uh, this morning. He was away in Tennessee, I believe, visiting grandchildren. Uh, he is the author of numerous books, and there's a list of degrees here that he has earned, but I would cut into his time if I spent time reading all of the places that he has he has uh, ministered and received degrees from. But more than that, he is a wonderful communicator of God's Word and a real statesman in the church today. And it is just a joy to have him here with us. Now, before he comes and ministers to us, you may be asking, how did we get somebody like Dr. Loritz to come to Crosspoint? Well, a few months ago, I was having lunch with Ron Mullins, a member here at the church who knows Dr. Ritz as they served on a board together at Columbia International University years ago. And Ron said, you know, I think we could get Pastor Loritz to come. And I said, really? And he said, yes. And so he called and I called and, and he said yes. And so we have really been looking forward to uh, this day for some time. So please join me in welcoming our dear brother and guest, Dr. Crawford Loritz. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, you guys sell without the product here, man. I tell you, that's uh, is a, it is a joy to be here with you. Um, um, by the way, let me get something out of the way. How many of you are sleepy here this morning? Yeah, I'll tell the truth. Just raise it high, man. Yeah, I know. Uh, if you feel like sleeping, please go ahead and sleep. I've slept on the best of them, so what goes around comes around. I won't take it personally. There's plenty of room here. You can lay down the aisle or whatever you like to do. But the worst thing in the world, trust me, we can see far more than you think we can see up here. So if you're sleepy, please don't fight it. That's, that's terrible. Just go ahead and sleep, you know. And, uh, I mean, and don't do one of these two things. Don't do like this, pretending as if you're reading or praying. That's a character issue. That's lying. So just, just go ahead and go to sleep. And, and don't do like this. That's distracting. So just, just help yourself. Yeah. Not that I need to give people permission, but I just, it just does me good. It's a, it's, it's a real treat to be here. And I, and I got to tell you, 
I have fallen in love with your pastor. Um, uh, pastor Brad and I met here several weeks ago. He came on up and we sat down and talked and just hearing his story and hearing what God is doing in his heart and life and hearing what God is doing here at Cross Point is a real, real blessing. Sometimes when you're in the middle of something that's going on, you don't always value or appreciate all that God is doing. But for 10 years to see how God's blessed this place, the growth that he's given, the people that he's leading here, the impact that you're making, and all of these things is just an extraordinary blessing. And, and I do count it a privilege to be here with you this morning. All right, I got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. So let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Holy Father, we love you and thank you for Jesus and thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and lives. We're gathered here together, Lord, not as some um, um, habitual thing that we do every Sunday morning. But, Lord, we're encountering the living God of the universe. And your word is not just a, a, a series of motivational statements that help us to feel warm and fuzzy. It is the very voice of God. And so, Father, we submit to your presence. And God, you know, part of my frustration every time I, I preach is that I don't know the stress, struggle, strain, and the stuff that uh, my brothers and sisters are laboring under. I don't know the burdens on their hearts. I don't know what will greet them when they pull in their driveways this afternoon. But we know, Father, that you know all things. And we pray that you'll tailor make everything that is said today to speak to our hearts. Oh, God, I pray, Lord, that they will not be distracted by anything that I say. Nobody needs to hear anything that Crawford has to say, but we can't miss anything that you have for us. So speak, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. When your pastor came to visit me and we chatted a little bit about our time together here, um, he mentioned this to me, and I prayed about it and decided to, to go in this direction. Felt like the Lord wanted me to go in this direction. Um, with all that's going on in our culture and all that's happening now, Black Lives Matter, uh, police shootings, uh, the presidential campaigns and race and ethnicity is all over the place. Uh, he asked me if I would say something along those lines about racial reconciliation. And uh, you need to know that I pastor a church that is 74% white and, and uh, what's the math there, 26% African-American. And uh, we have also fellowship in, Hes in Espanol there, meeting on our campus, and we are committed to diversity. Interestingly enough, though, we don't talk a lot about diversity. We do talk some about it periodically. In fact, this evening I'm going back and we're having one of our conversations this evening. Uh, there'll be dinner served and we will sit around and just talk about issues and questions that we have because in order to love each other better, we need to know each other more. And so I decided, well, yes, that's what I'll speak on today. And, I, and the t I've entitled the message, Reconciliation and the Integrity of the Gospel. Reconciliation and the Integrity of the Gospel. Um, I need to set this up, and I'm going to give some personal illustrations here. I was born and raised in the central ward of Newark, New Jersey. Now, some of you say Newark, New Jersey. Uh, that's not very ethnically diverse. Well, it was when I was born. Uh, let me take the mystery out of it. I was born February, February 11th, 1950, and some of the younger ones have gone, oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> so, and, uh, but back during that time, uh, uh, you may not believe this about the Northeast, but many Northeastern cities during that time 
were particularly working class communities were ethnically diverse. I grew up in the central ward of New Jersey, lived at 83 Wilsey Street there, and on the first floor of our apartment building for those first 12 years that we lived there was a Philip Bacchus family. They were, they were Greek. I, played, I went to school and played ball with John San Giovanni uh, and Rocco Bonavice, as well as Gerald Adams and Lloyd Cotton, and we hung out with each other. We were in each other's houses. We grew up that way. And I, 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 the only place that was segregated on Sunday morning, I went to Trinity AME Church on Sunday morning, and I was very much aware of my background, my heritage, my great-grandfather who was a slave, his name was Peter, singing and a praying man, great influence in my life. And so I grew up in a context in which I never felt as if I had to choose, now hear me, hear me, I never felt, hear me, I never felt as if I had to choose who I loved or who my friend should be. I just sort of grew up that way. Now, I wish I could say I had something to do with that, but I didn't. That's just God's sovereign foundations. And little did I know that he was preparing me for a life that would be lived in terms of building bridges. And even though I I was in undergraduate school during the heyday of the civil rights movement, 68 to 72, and everything nationalistic and rediscovering who we are and the dismantling of, of the Jim Crow system and all of this stuff, those early foundations, those early foundations helped me to weather the storm and not go to polar opposites, but to realize that, in, that the gospel spoke to where we come from and that there was a higher calling that was necessary. Now, I need you to hang in there with me because I really am going someplace with this. Every 15 or 20 years, God makes sure that race and ethnicity is put front and center in our minds. And I think it's a prophetic word to the church. And I just need to tell you, I'm a little bit too old to do recreational preaching, so here it is. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. One of the great problems that we have as churches, and I'm looking at some younger people here, and you guys are our hope. One of the great problems, and I don't want you to repeat what we've done. One of the great problems we have as Bible-believing people is that, is that typically we tend to be 15 to 20 years behind the culture. We typically are answering questions that nobody's asking anymore. And the church has lost its prophetic edge. Part of that is that we don't want to buck up against the system. There's this isolationist view that we have theologically that somehow or another we need to cocoon ourselves. And the world is looking for prophetic answers. They're looking for prophetic reality. They're looking for direction. And I'm going to step into something here, and I'm not being political. Please, I'm not being political at all. But I think the sovereign hand of God is behind the political confusion that we have today. And I happen to believe, I don't bemoan what's happening here, I happen to believe that this could be God setting the stage for the finest hour of the church. I believe that with all my heart. I'm not doom and gloom about whatever takes place because come November 9th, God will still be on his throne and he will still be in charge and he's not asleep at the switch. And although we're curled up in the fetal position and taking Maylocks because our candidate one way or another didn't lost, God knows what he's doing. And he can hit a straight look with a crooked stick. So once again, the presidential campaign, the police shootings, the Black Lives Matter, all of these things have placed this agenda front and center. And the question that Christians have got to ask, answer is this. Why is God allowing this to happen? What message is there for us? 
That's the question. The question is not whether or not you agree with Black Lives Matter, and I have some concerns about some of the philosophical underpinnings of that myself. The question is not about that. The question is not about the fairness and, and God, God help us, the injustices and all these things that have been taking place. We, we've got to ask the systemic question. The, found, the fundamental question is, why has God allowed this to happen? And what message is there to us? What moment in history does he perhaps want us to seize? What unfinished business might there be that needs to be finished? Is there something that God is bringing to our doorstep and saying to us, I need your help to deal with this. I want you to do something about this. Now, the history of race in America, this is no big, issue, big, big insight, is the history of separation. It's the history of separation. And let's just face it, our backgrounds, what has taken place here, and some people say, well, why, why, are you, why, why are you talking about this? I mean, come on, can't you get over this? Can't we all get over this stuff? Well, I would remind you, from an anthropological perspective, slavery is still a very recent event. My great-grandfather was a slave. Put it this way, my father remembered him. My dad was the youngest boy of 14 kids. He was born February 14th, 1914. February 13th, 1914, and, and he remembered him. Peter lived to be an old man. I remember as a kid drinking out of colored fountains. I remember going to movies with my cousins there in uh, Conover, North Carolina, and having to sit up in the balcony. I remember that. And so, so these things are real, and I say that not to guilt anyone, but for us to face the reality of where things are and the fact that uh, the history of our country, the history of, of what's going on here in the United States of America is a history of separation. And what tends to happen to us because we don't come together the way we need to and develop the kind of significant relationships that we need to develop, we tend to address these issues from our own vantage points, if you will. In other words, in other words, this is this is this old line that distance breeds suspicion. Distance breeds suspicion. And because we're separated, because we do life separately, because we don't interact on a on a heart level with people who are significantly different from us, I say um, that's a generalization. Some of us do, but too many of us don't. We continue to reaffirm our negative stereotypes and our conclusions, and our own group feeds those conclusions. I ain't just talking about white folks; I'm talking about black folks too, because we've got some squirrely conclusions, and we continue to do that. Because it's just, it's, and it's sort of a benign racism. I don't think people intend to do that. But we live in that world. And that's another anchor that we bring into the church. And we don't question our, better, our, 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 our assumptions. We don't question our basic presuppositions about things that may not be so. We don't question them. We just make assumptions about them. And then we bifurcate our spiritual reality from the marketplaces that we live in. And so we continue down that journey. And that should not be. And I will just say this, obviously, uh, you know, there have been tons of sociologists through the years and all these folks and trying to, well, what really is racism? And this kind of, well, the Bible's very simple and clear about racism. Racism is nothing more than the sin of partiality, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And I would put it this way, racism is nothing more than the sin of pride with pigmentation. That's what racism is. 
It's the sin of pride with pigmentation. It's not all that heavy. Now, there's sociological things that you can say about it, but that's all it is. So what ought we to do? Well, the church has not had a very good record here, the evangelical wing of the church, which, which, which tears me up. Uh, liberals have. Uh, they have a justice without substance. And some of us have a substance without justice. And so our, 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 our track record ain't all that, ain't all that healthy, just to be frank with you. Uh, we, res- we have responded with a benign accommodation. It is what it is. We have black churches, white churches, and, and this kind of thing. Now, I want to say something here that might surprise you. I, although I, I pass a church that is diverse, and I see a growing diversity here, too. I pass a church that is diverse. It might surprise you. I'm not necessarily saying that every church has to be a diverse church. I think every church has to reflect the context in which they're living. So if you're in South Dakota someplace, not unless you're going to be busing or planing black folks into that place, I don't think you have much of a, I'm just saying, you know. So let's not get silly with this stuff is what I'm saying. But I think we have had a benign accommodation. We've accommodated what is rather than, rather than focus on what should be. I think the other thing is that we've accepted an abnormal normal. We've accepted an abnormal normal. Is this normal? Is it normal for the culture around us, for, for the context around us to be more diverse than the church? Is it normal for the schools around the church to be more diverse than the church? Is it normal for the communities around the churches to be more diverse than the church? Is that normal? Is that, should that be? I don't think so. That's not God's desire. But we, we've accommodated this abnormal normal. And then I think in, in a very real sense, and let's just be honest here. I'm evangelical. I'm Bible-believing. I believe in exposition. I, I, I'm committed to the cross. I'm as orthodox as they come. But for the sake of intellectual integrity and honesty, we have lost some credibility. And it hurts my heart to say that. But we have lost some credibility, not in terms of the articulation of truth, but in terms of modeling the destiny at which the society needs to arrive. And that's where we've lost our integrity. We know truth and we proclaim truth, but truth is not only didactic and transcendent, truth is incarnational. Truth is visible. It is not what we say and articulate, it's what we say, articulate, and become that, be, that, that, that gives a full picture of the power and potency of the gospel. And that we've got some heavy lifting to do here. Some heavy lifting to do. Now, having said all of that, I believe that God is forcing our hand. I, I want to I say a few things, and this is where we're going to get to the scriptures finally. I want to warn us. Overcoming racism um, and overcoming our, 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 our propensity in our default mode to embrace sameness and overcoming that, uh, the answer is very simple. I didn't say it's easy to do, but I think the answer is very clear. I don't think one needs a Ph.D. 
and social development and sociology to figure out what the answer is. The answer is very clear and simple. Now, doing it is difficult, but the answer is very obvious. The answer is found in courageous action. Change takes place through decisive, determined action. It is the willingness to pay the price. It is the willingness. It is the willingness to stand by your convictions. It is the willingness to not let pragmatism and comfort erode what is right. It is the willingness to confront that. We know what the answer is. The question is, are we willing to pay that price? Are we willing to do that? That's what the real question is on the table. Not more symposiums about it, not more conferences about it. No, there may need to be some how-tos and the development of that and roll-out things, but the answer is pretty obvious. And so, um, I really believe that we have been, we and I put myself in this too, we have been far too passive when it comes to these things. Far too passive. I happen to believe that we need to ch- the courage to confront our fears, our stereotypes, and our comfort. What is it that the gospel requires me to be? What is it that the gospel requires me to say? What is it that the gospel requires me to model? And I want to reduce, there's a lot of theology under these three banners, but I don't have all day, and I just want to quickly walk through these things. I think that there are three fundamental determinations as it relates to, to, to becoming the visible model at which society needs to arrive. You do know, you do know that is the mandate of the church. You do know that that's the reason why the church exists. You do know that, don't you? The church exists not just for our own personal health and not just so that we solve our problems, not just so that we have our community needs met, not just so that we overcome issues, but there is a prophetic incarnational mandate of the church. It goes back, and I don't want to get into all of this, to the whole theology of the peoples of God. The reason why God chose the nation of Israel, the reason why there is a peoples of God, was to demonstrate in the midst of a fallen world what kingdom values look like, what redeemed people do, what the world was destined to be or should become. And so, as you, as you have that mandate, not just a horizontal personal mandate, but as you have that mandate firmly uh, gripped within our own hearts and minds, then these things take on a real potent relevance. The first fundamental determination is that, number one, we need to decide and determine to pursue a new normal. There's a lot of theology in that statement, but I, I want to draw your attention to the vision in Revelation chapter 7. John is on the Isle of Patmos in exile, and he has this incredible vision. God shows him, and it actually is a revelation of Jesus. And he sees this sight in heaven of what the end game is going to be. And listen to these words. Verses 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Now connect salvation belongs to our God to every tribe, every nation, and every language. The gospel has been heard and received. And all these languages and all these tongues are standing in heaven 
worshiping God and blessing his holy name for our redemption and our salvation. It belongs to him. I really believe that what he's saying here, and I'm summarizing a whole lot of theology right here, but the inference here, I really believe, is a mandate for us down here. You see, it doesn't say that in the text. But if you read through the Gospels and you read through the New Testament, the desire of God, in fact, Paul makes this statement. He says that the church of the living God is the household of God, the temple of God, the presence of God in the context of an unbelieving world. The very nature of church is prophetic. That where we can, if and, and if at all possible, we are to be the visible representation of that eternal reality. It's not just saying that we're all going to be in heaven, so we better learn how to get along down here. Well, that's a nice little cute statement. The problem with that statement is that there ain't going to be no sin in heaven. There's a lot of sin down here. So that's why you can't get along down here. We won't have that in heaven. But where at all possible, we ought to model that new normal, that new vision. Um, 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 the church is meant to be the, the colony of the kingdom. Uh, to model what we preach. I've said this like three or four times already, but we are this colony of the kingdom. Colony of the kingdom. Colony of the future. Colony of heaven down here. That's what we're about. Now, I don't want to trip into some extreme triumphalism, but that's what we're really all about. Most of us don't think that way. But that's the noble part of being a part of the body of Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 11 through 22. I don't have time to read all of that. But Paul is talking about reconciliation there. And by the way, by the way, by the way, I, 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 I think when we get in these discussions about reconciliation or, or racial reconciliation, we make an error. We, we posited reconciliation as something to take place, something to happen. Paul doesn't speak to it that way. He doesn't speak to it that way. He speaks of reconciliation. Now, don't, no, parenthetically, some recon reconciliation does need to take place where there is sin or people have been hurt or offended against. Obviously, those, those problems need to be, be resolved. But Paul speaks of racial reconciliation as having already occurred. And he says we need to live out our identity. It is not something to be achieved. It is something that has occurred. The moment we said yes to Jesus Christ, what has happened is that in, in Ephesians 2, that the, the, the two alien bodies, that we were separated. And don't personalize that text. That text has implications in terms of the church. That Jews and Gentiles who were separated came together at the foot of the cross and in one body. He reconciled us. It's like we used to tell our children when they were coming along and Karen and I would be going out and there'd be a sitter watching them. And I would say to our kids, especially my boys, I would say to them, look, mom and I are leaving here and uh, your last name is Loretz. Act like it. <laughs> and what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 2, ho, 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 <laughs> You don't have a choice. In terms of who you're connected to. That's been taken off the table. You have been reconciled. Church, act like it. Live that out. 
I'm calling you to courageous, courageous, courageous action. And by the way, Paul's strategy when he planted a church, this is the reason why I say to some of our colleagues now that we cannot incrementalize this thing. Do you know what Paul did? Actually, he did seven things whenever he planted a church. It's an interesting thing. But when he, when he came to a city, he went first to the synagogue, and he preached the gospel to the Jews. Now, check this out. He did not incrementalize racial reconciliation. He didn't, it, it wasn't a process with Paul because he believed what he wrote. He believed the revelation that God gave him. He believed the power of the gospel was dramatic. And so when he went to the the synagogue and he preached the gospel and they gave their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, he would go out to the agora or the marketplace where the Gentiles hung out. And there he would preach Christ there. Now, he didn't say, he didn't say, okay, you know what? You guys are too far apart culturally. You dudes eat, don't eat swine and y'all eat swine and you don't do this and you do that. And we do know that there are history here and there are cultural mores and things that we've got to overcome and there are processes that we've got to work with. Maybe, maybe we'll bring somebody in and do a series of sensitivity training and they'll build bridges and help us to understand anthropologically where we've all come from and those things. And, you know, we'll have, we'll have a Gentile service in the morning and a Jewish service in the eating, evening and then we'll switch pastors and we'll get there eventually. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. You know, the longest he stayed at any place, I think it was slightly less than two years. He didn't do that. The moment they came to Jesus Christ, immediately, immediately, he put Jews and Gentiles together. Not that he was ignorant to process and not that he was ignorant to pro- You read 1 Corinthians, read all the stuff. There was all kinds of hassles. It was messy and they didn't like one another. They had all that stuff. But he said, look, look, going back is not an option. The cross is powerful. Work it out. Work it out. Work it out. The church is God's answer to exclusion is what Paul said. The gospel is the answer to exclusion. Not just personal salvation, but corporate salvation. We misquote Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We, we personalize the your, but the your there is plural. He's talking about the church there, Philippi. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, not personally, but corporately the church at Philippi. It's not about your preferences, Crawford. It's not about what you like. It's not about your politics. It's not about what you prefer. But it's about the integrity of the gospel. Work it out with fear and trembling. It's God who's at work with you. So we're on this journey together. This thing has kept me going in my personal life. Can't tell you the number of times in which I... And it sounds like a woe is me thing. God has been so gracious to me, so, so, so wonderful to me. But from the time I trusted Jesus at 13 and a half years old, God placed in my heart this vision based upon sovereign foundations that he gave me. So I, I've always found myself as a bridge builder, one of the few this, the you know, president of my classes in undergraduate school, the first black president is the first black this, that, and other in leadership positions with crusade and other things. But I can tell you, it was lonely. It was lonely. 
I had many white colleagues ask me, okay, now, what are you doing here? Many black friends say things like, why are you over there? Your abilities and gifts, why don't you, several of them would say, come home. And I would hear my dad say to me, he tell me as a young boy, he would say to me, boy, don't you ever let anybody tell you who your friend should be. And I kept coming back to the noble vision of Ephesians 2. Kept coming back to this. Now, the, 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 it's, it's tipped on the other side. I, I am so encouraged. There's this whole movement. My sons are involved in it. They pastor multi-ethnic churches. There is a growing movement that has given me so much encouragement. It's becoming the rumblings of a new normal. Uh, your pastor's vision here. And others, I mean, it's becoming the rumblings. And it's exciting. But you've got to pay a price for this stuff. And these young residents, we have a residence program at our church where we bring in four or five young church planners. They get out of seminary, want to plant churches. And just about all of them have this vision in them. It's exciting. But we need to pick up the steam creating this new normal. Secondly, I've got to hustle on here. We need to decide and determine to embrace a new normal or to pursue a new number sec- normal. Secondly, we need to decide and determine not to love from a distance. We have to determine not to love from a distance. The gospel itself means the outpouring of God's love and the sharing of God's love. That's what it means. When Jesus uttered these statements, and, you know, John chapters 13 through 16 is really Jesus preaching his own eulogy. It's called the upper room discourse. He's summarizing everything that he taught his disciples in those three and a half years. But it's interesting, in John 13, it begins by him washing the feet of his disciples serving them. Ironically, the very ones that he would die for. And then he says to them in these incredible verses, sometimes familiar texts of scripture we get sloppy with. He says to them in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By the way, the, the commandment to love had been given in the Old Testament. It was new in the sense that this would be the prevailing description of his followers, and prophetically of this thing called the church. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And I don't play with these words uh, too often, but he uses the Greek word agapao, or agape. Now, we trivialize that. Agape is more than God's unconditional love. Trying to define agape is akin to trying to define holiness or glory. The finite human mind cannot come, uh, cannot, cannot, describe uh, the proactive purity and the, 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 the amazing, massive, incomprehensible love of God. Supernatural love. And so what he's saying is a new commandment I give to you that you love agapao, that you love one another with this extraordinary, noble, superhuman, supernatural love. And you take a biographical snapshot of these disciples, you knew how different they were. Jesus said, that's on purpose. That's on purpose. I'm not into homogeneity here. I'm not into sameness here. 
That's right. From the very beginning, the disciples was the prototype of the church. All different social, economic strata, different backgrounds, that kind of thing, because of the power of God's love. And not only that, I don't want you guys to love from a distance. I want you to love up close. By this shall all men know that you are my followers. If you have agapao, in other words, and I don't think it's a stretch, you guys are not supposed to get along. You're not supposed to even like each other. And yet because of the power of the cross, what does it say about the power of the cross when we know what we can be, but we choose not to be? What does it say about the integrity of the gospel when we know where we could be, but we choose to stay where we are? What does that say? And unity means living in community. It means to demonstrate community and the truth of the gospel. And that's what John 17, 20 through 23 is all about. I won't read that, but Jesus in his high priestly prayers, his father, I pray that they would be one. And he's not talking about an isolated they, a socioeconomic they, all of they. I'm praying that they would be one as we're one. And the world will know about the transforming power of the gospel when they see that unity. You see, the test of diversity and inclusion is not the kind of church you attend. I say it's our church all the time, and we have all kinds of ethnicities there and this kind of thing. But that's not the test. Having, having different colors and ethnicities and cultures and that kind of sitting in a worship service together does not necessarily mean you have a diverse church. It means you have a diverse congregation. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a diverse church. It doesn't necessarily mean that diversity is taking place where it should be. You see, the test of the diversity is not who's sitting next to you in church. The test of the diversity is who you're having dinner with. Who are you praying with? Who are you doing life with? Who have you invited in to challenge your set of basic assumptions? Who are you learning from? That's what it's all about. Uh, let me tell you an experience that I had here. Um, <laughs> so back in 1996, I bought this brand new car. And uh, I dropped our youngest son off. Uh, at school. We were living in South Fulton County at the time. Dropped them off at school. Highway 29 uh, was near the school, and they were doing some construction there on Highway 29. They had this temporary stop sign there. It was very busy in the morning. Well, you're supposed to give and go, give and go, give and go, that kind of thing. Well, it's my turn to go. Well, this guy must have been, he was in a hurry, must have been way back in the line, and forgot about the sign there. He pulls out, and it's Jeep Grand Cherokee, never get this. And I pull out here, and he's going probably on 55, 60 miles per hour when he hits me. He hits me. This much further back, I would be in heaven. And uh, airbags, all the stuff go off. I get out of the car, and I get out of the car, this guy's calling me names. 
Now, Mike, he hit me. Just want to make that straight. He hit me. And he's calling me. Actually, he's very creative in his profanity. I'd never, I just like, put those, you put those words together. So he's calling me all these names, and he drops the N-word on me a number of times. Calls my mother a dirty black SOB. And I was livid. I was livid. First of all, the dude hits, hits me. And he didn't even know me. And I'll never forget this. My wife shows up, the, you know, the record comes, and it's kind of, I get in the car, and I said, I got in the car, Karen, I was, I was, I was, honestly, I was just so ticked, I was so angry. I said, sweetheart, I'm a grown man, and all I am to white folks is, and I use the N-word, and as soon as I said that, the Holy Spirit convicted me, rushing to my mind. Crawford, Dennis Rainey would never call you that. Josh McDowell, one of my dearest friends in the world, would never call you that. Steve Douglas, president of Crusade, would never call you that. Ron Mullins, who's here this morning, he would never call you that. Bill Tarr, he would never call you that. You see what, you see what happened? Some of these names that I mentioned, people that I did life with who were different than me, and the Holy Spirit used that to recalibrate my thinking. And I think this is the key to all things. When you develop those kinds of relationships with people and you love on one another and you make yourself vulnerable and you learn from one another, uh, that, that's, where, that's where these things begin to change. You see the power of Jesus to change someone's life and the power to change your life. And it benchmarks you for a long time. The final one is this. The first decision, determination that we need to make is we need to decide and determine to pursue a new normal. Number two, we need to decide and determine not to love from a distance. And then thirdly, we need to decide and determine to protect each other's dignity. This is where the justice part of the gospel comes in. To protect each other's dignity. There are two, there's two screaming illustrations of this. One, they both come from Paul, the little letter to Philemon, Philemon, verses 15 through 16. You know why he wrote Philemon, don't you? That little letter, you know why he wrote Philemon? He wrote Philemon this letter because Onesimus was a slave of his who had escaped. He'd run away slave. Onesimus finds his way to Paul. Paul leads him to Jesus. Onesimus is changed and changed radically. Paul writes Philemon and says, Onesimus is coming back, but I want you to receive him not as a servant, but as your brother. I don't want you to receive him as a slave. I want you to embrace, in so many words, his dignity as one who has been created in the image of God. The second illustration is given over in Galatians chapter, chapter 2. And I think I will read this one in Galatians chapter 2. Now, this, this is a biggie. The, the Apostle Paul, uh, God had called and ministered to Gentiles. Remember, Peter had been given this great vision in Acts, uh, Acts 10 of, 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 of this, all these things that were against the dietary regulations for Jews to eat. And God says, what I've created, don't call common and unclean, setting him up for Cornelius uh, uh, to come to Jesus. And so Peter knew better. 
Peter knew better. There's a lot of, a lot of time between this has gone by. But Peter wrestled, as we all do, with some of our feelings and some of our racism. And so Paul confronts Peter about some racist attitudes. Listen to these words. Verse 11 says, But when Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came uh, from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas, oh, son of encouragement, tender, wonderful, compliant, friendly, warm and fuzzy, don't put down anybody, Barnabas, was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now listen to what Paul says. Listen to what he says about racism. Listen to what he says. This next line. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Hold up, Peter. Wait, hold man. Wait, wait, wait a minute, buddy. Now, before these folks with deep pockets came along who were Jews, you used to hang with us and the Gentiles. They showed up, and it ain't culturally chic for you to be hanging with us now. I need you to know something, Peter. This ain't about background. This ain't about preferences. This is about the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And if they believe, they're my brother. Peter, Peter, they believe they're your brothers. Not only do you not have a right, it is sinful and wrong for you to pull back from them. Paul calls them on that. I'll wrap it up by telling this story, okay? So I went to college, a place called, it's now called Cairn University. Back then it was called Philadelphia College of Bible. And uh, I sang in the chorale. Yes, I did sing back then. Uh, you don't want me to do that now. Um, so myself and this woman, a uh, young lady by the name of Kathy Banks, we were two, only two African Americans in the school chorale. And so in March, they would take this uh, spring um, you know, on spring break, they would take this tour, tour, tour to, uh, th- this year we went to Florida. Now, you got to understand, this is the spring of 1969, okay? I'm 19 years old. So, what we did, we, we got to start way down in South Florida, Boca Raton, and we moved our way up, and, and what we would do every evening, the chorale would sing and do the concert there, and then we would stand up front, and our host would come and claim us, and we would go and spend a night and get a good good meal and good southern hospitality. I won't tell you the name of the city because I don't want to impugn the city or, and I'm, and I'm assuming this church has since changed. But we were in a city in central Florida and uh, concert, sang the concert, did the deal. And so all of us are standing up front. Now you got to feel this with me. You got to feel this with me. All of us are standing up front and here comes the host. And they're claiming the choir members. 
Kathy and I are the last ones. And I got I to figure, you know, I was born at night, but not last night. And I have to tell you, um, as I saw the, my, my colleagues going and us staying, I'm saying, I, wonder, I hope this ain't what I'm feeling this might be. And so, sure enough, I was the last one to be picked, and it was the youth staff of the church that picked me. We didn't go to a home. They took us outside to this, outside of town to this camp. Where we spent the night there, we came on back. And uh, I asked the choir director the next morning. You know, I don't know where Kathy stayed last night, but I stayed at a camp. Everybody else went and stayed at homes. I just need to ask you. I just need to ask you. Why did we stay? Why did I have to stay in a camp? And to his credit, he said, well, I knew ahead of time that the only, they, the only request that they had here is that if we sang here at this church, uh, the black members could not stay in their homes. And I said this to him. I said, you know what? My parents would have never done that to you or anybody else. And if I was good enough to sing in this choir, how come you wouldn't stand up for me? Now, I do have a little bit of grace because I do understand that was 1969. And, and, I, I, you know, and, I, and I want to be gracious to him. I think he just succumbed to the mores and the pressures of the time. But I got to tell you, that marked me a little bit. I'm singing for you, but you're not standing up for me. And that's biblical justice. And as Paul stood up for Onesimus, and as Paul stood up to Peter, I think in the name of Jesus, we need to begin standing up for one another. Loving one another that way, in a radical way, and pointing out sin wherever it is whether it's in our family, whether it's other places. And it's at that moment when we start moving toward the noble vision of God, of what God created us to be, we might see one of the greatest revivals since Pentecost. But revival is not going to be cheap, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to come when we're willing to confront sin, even our national sin, and become the portrait of the desired destination. Father, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for these loving, patient people. Thank you for who you call us to be. I pray, Lord God, that you will help us, help us, help us to be sold out to Jesus, to do whatever it takes to represent you in the context of this fallen world. God, make yourself known in and through us. Lord, there's exciting opportunities, but may we on our watch be fully obedient, not just in terms of what we say, but in terms of what we're willing to embrace and represent. In Jesus' name, amen.